week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. Hello, Christina. You notice that I'm color-coordinated today again, as usual. I'm wearing <laughs> green because it's going to be a talk on botanical medicine. Oh, I thought you were going to say it was St. Patty's Day again. No, I would never. <laughs> I don't think I would say that. But maybe on St. Patty's Day. But no. <laughs> Greetings, everybody, and welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your medical guide and co-host, along with Christina, as we search yet another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, looking for optimal health. And today we're going to be talking again with Dr. Jeffrey Block. Uh, we spoke with him in episode 125 in his role as an anesthesiologist, and we alluded a little bit to his botanical roles. But uh, now we're going to speak to him in another aspect of what he does as a master horticulturist, a master gardener, and he runs a nursery. He has also been uh, chosen by the Florida Medical Association as a consultant uh, in botanical medicine. And we're going to be talking a lot about that today, including uh, medical cannabis. That's going to be the big talk today. It's a very uh, big topic, as we know, Christina, in the world today. Oh, yes, yes. So we're looking forward to this. And so I want to get our viewers to know uh, that there will be some slides on this show. So if you happen to be listening and you feel like you would like to see some slides, you maybe should turn it to a visual for this one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the meantime, if anyone wants to get in touch with us, how do they do that? Well, if uh, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Now, you can do this at any time, if it's uh, a year's past or any time at all, and we will definitely uh, do our best to uh, send your comment or question to our special guest, or Dr. Woolman, and we will get back to you on that. Uh, now, if you're listening to this through a, your device, like your iPhone or iPod, iPad or anything like that, um, and you do have a comment or suggestion, please give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you, Dr. Woolman. Uh, you're welcome, Christina. Let's get right into this. Mm. Uh, I want to introduce again and welcome back Dr. Jeff Block. Hi, Jeff. Hi there, Glenn. Hi, Christina. Hello, Jeff. Thank you for joining us again. Nice to see you. It's been a few weeks. <laughs> yes. Uh, so everybody that saw you during anesthesia, uh, our talk, uh, number 125, I believe it was, uh, we want to wake everyone up now. And <laughs> as an anesthesiologist, we're going to shift into the other part of Jeff Block. And I look here at this picture of you uh, with your, I believe it's your nursery. It's beautiful, lush gardens and things like that. And I want to know, what are your qualifications? I, I mentioned earlier that you're dedicated or you've been chosen as the 
person, the consultant for the Florida Medical Association, please correct me if I'm wrong, in botanical medicine. And part of that has to do with uh, working with the, uh, the political people and the uh, legal people in terms of medical cannabis, which is what we're going to be talking about today. So what are the qualifications that made them choose you? Well, it, it actually probably goes back to what brought me to medicine in the first place, because I was a plantsman before a doctor. As a kid growing up, families uh, ties to the plant industry. I have a grandmother who owned a flower shop here at Miami Beach, and I sort of was weaned on plants and, and knew about things like chlorophyll before I knew anything about people and another molecule that looks just like it, hemoglobin. So uh, my background lent me to know something about plants. And then there's really not that much of it that's taught after perhaps basic college courses, if you might take something in botany, because medical school tends to be focused on people. But the specialty I went in on, which was the focus of the first talk we did, anesthesiology is really the practice of clinical pharmacology. And so many of the drugs that we use today are derived from plants because the plants are virtual factories for the skeletons of molecules that we know in modern pharmacology have been in the past and still are today. Hmm. So you are a master gardener. What is a master gardener? A master gardener is a term that the Department of Agriculture uses within counties of individual states. The Department of Agriculture usually have, going back hundreds of years, uh, agricultural extensions. Uh, if you remember, there were there was Green Acres, the sitcom years ago, <laughs> and, and Arnold the Pig's owner. Um, it, it, these are uh, separate entities of people who serve the community. It's usually a voluntary basis, but by being experts in what that particular area of the country offers. So, in fact, the Master Gardener program in Florida, where I am, is qualitatively very different than California, where you are, and certainly very different from the northern climate. We have such a big country that agriculture is decidedly different in these places, and it's a way to share the expertise with the citizenry to get better outcomes. And you're also a horticulturist. Is that different than a Master Gardener? Mm. In essence, yes, a gardener is a gardener. Horticulture is really the art of practicing just that, culture of horta, which is a Latin derivative for plants. And so uh, horticulturists tend to want to do things a little cleaner, a little nicer, uh, try to get things in terms of, for instance, when I was competing in fancy things for ornamental plants, because that really was my first love. Uh, horticulture was something that would show well, for instance, in front of an orchid judge or things like that. Mm. So horticulture, nevertheless, is absolutely essential to any botanist, because that's where you try to grow things to nature's perfection. And you also own and run a nursery, which we're going to talk a little bit about later, but you can talk about that for a few moments now if you like. Well, it's known as Block Botanical Gardens. Uh, I had spent the last 25 years developing a residential property that's here in Miami, and the natural substrate of it was wonderful to begin with because it's a 100-year-old mango and avocado grove. Nice. So wow. over the last... <laughs> Over the last 25 years, uh, I've had a local following and then a state, fed, national, and eventually some international following as a pretty decent grower rather than a farmer who's out there farming fruit or citrus the way it might have been in, in decades past. 
my focus on ornamentals has fit in and had great outreach across industry and also across the world so that people got to see some things I grow here that uh, perhaps I have had a little more success with than some people in other parts of the country. But I have our local sunshine, water, and, and warmth to thank for that. Beautiful. And we're going to, so it seems like you certainly have a lot of credentials as a physician, a scientist, an anesthesiologist, understanding of pharmacology, and also plant-based pharmacology to be what you are. So let's learn a little bit about that. <clears throat> Take us back to the, the history of the beginnings when plants were here and then the human species came in and how they interacted. Uh, in terms of just foods and in medicines and in spiritual ways, I guess. Oh, we can go back even before humans were humans as we know them now. <laughs> because animals derive most of, of, of their nutrition, of course, from plants. We have carnivores, omnivores, herbivores. And it depends on what kind of things a given animal eats. So obviously human beings can eat a variety of things to sustain their health. And the fact is that the plants provided much more than simply things to eat. They provided things that keep us healthy. In addition to simple dietary needs for energy, they provided the sources for therapy for different diseases, even cures for certain things. And even ancient cultures, or even just instinctually knowing as an animal what's good or bad to eat, are things that get carried on from not just from generation to generation, but but from age to age, epoch to epoch. Uh, and so it's easy to follow things way back, even in terms of the plant we're going to be talking on later today about cannabis, way back to the Pleistocene age with the Ice Age and how early human beings had to know what was good and what wasn't, or they wouldn't have survived and genetically evolved. Yes, and we are going to, we're going to flip way back and way forward all through this uh, talk today. You talk about the relationship and similarities. You mentioned already that uh, chlorophyll is very similar to hemoglobin. Are there other ways that humans and plants are similar and how oh, they absolutely. are important to each other? Absolutely. Uh, there's a whole theory of what's called coevolution, Glenn, where it's sometimes important to understand that Plants are different than people because they can't get up and flee when something stresses them. They're rooted, and they've designed themselves to evolve to have miraculous ways to get from one point to another. The earliest plants, long before there were people, long before there were animals, were ferns that decided the best way to get from here to there are with little spores, tiny little particles that wind would bring them from one point to another to start growing where they didn't start off. And then after that, flowering plants developed ways with seeds to spread seeds, sometimes through floating along with air. But what about those seeds that are found inside fruits? Fruits drop, animal picks it up and eating it, walks around with it and drops it from the other end someplace else. And there that seed sprouts. And the plants then have developed magnificent ways to move from one place to the other, including when cultures understand that they provide a health benefit. So, in fact, the plant, again, we're talking about today, cannabis, has found its way around the whole globe with people uh, since the Ice Age. And it's been because it has provided so much, not only medicinally, but textile-wise. Uh, the textiles used that we think of cotton today as a textile, before cotton was cotton in our country, hemp was farmed and grown for just that. 
And even from Europe, the riggings on ships that made it here, Columbus's ships, the sails were made of hemp and the ropes were made of hemp for the riggings. And, and so we, in fact, have taken that particular plant around the globe with us over the last several thousands of years. While they were on their uh, hemp-laden ships, were they also uh, indulging? <laughs> uh, not necessarily. They are very different products. They work their way around the globe in different directions. Uh, Europe tended to be an area where hemp was truly featured as a uh, textile. And in other parts of the world, China and India, uh, the more drug forms that we think of today tended to be part of the general health and culture. And, and it is so today as well. Um, so there are different forms of cannabis which have evolved to serve different needs. Nonetheless, they've been crucial for the development of human beings and their well-being in many ways. That's an interesting uh, point. Where did, where did marijuana or cannabis originate? Do we know that? We do. Um, we, I don't tend to use the term marijuana because it's sort of a slang form that originated from Mexico around the turn of the century and was associated with banditos. But in this case, truly the cannabis that you're talking about probably evolved off of the eastern slopes of the Himalayas about ten to 12,000 years ago because that was one of the areas on the planet that was known as a refugia. And that means that the conditions there stayed warm enough during parts of the year and wet enough, even through the Ice Age, for certain plants and animal species to survive. And so we know pretty convincingly that that's where cannabis, as far back as we can go, 10 to 12,000 years ago, when there weren't only human beings as we know them today, were derived from Cro-Magnon. But Neanderthal also existed side by side and probably enjoyed the health benefits of the cannabis way back from then and took it with them. One species more successfully than the other, but it's still with us today. So how did, how did uh, cannabis go from the slope of the Himalayas to uh, Colorado? <laughs> um, in a very arduous way. Okay. Um, Basically, you had, as I mentioned before, different ways that it had to get to the New World, because remember, the New World is not where this evolved. So there were ways that it probably came to the New World several hundreds of years ago, four to five hundred years ago, through the Caribbean. Some of the Spanish ships, it was found certainly to go to islands in the Caribbean, still very popular in Jamaica. There were other ways it came from around the other side of the world. Uh, through Japan and into actually where Northern Californian portions of Canada are around the turn of the century, this past century or the early 1900s. So the tracking of it as far as how it's gotten around the planet has been fascinating. Colorado is a different story in of itself. So mm -hmm. let's just say it was well entrenched within the United States culture well before the 1930s when it went under prohibition. We can get to that later. I'm going to come close to that now. So let's start talking about uh, medical cannabis. You said that they were using it uh, from the beginning of time, uh, the early, early Cro-Magnon and Neanderthals were using it for medicinal purposes. Uh, and we went into more modern centuries, even into the 18th and 19th, and you just talked about down up to 1930 or so. We were using this. What were we using it for, and how did how was it used? 
Well, it was strangely enough in its earlier days, not smoked. Smoking is a more recent uh, way it's used. Animals tend to use cannabis, and, and not just that, but other uh, leafy substances by chewing. And that's because there's ways to get that chemical into the body. And frankly, absorption through the mouth is one of the standard ways that animals get many uh, of their, their medicines in. And it doesn't only have to be medicine. It can sometimes be thought of as a, a nutritional supplement as well. Mm -hmm. So one way then could be from chewing. Another way could be in, in preparations where it's used in teas and things like that. Um, and, and for the most part, it's, it was part of cultures uh, in, in many, many different ways. But the principal way that started to evolve for how humans and the way we think of it today with smoking was certainly a very different way of having it uh, come in. So, in fact, it's the entire plant that may have certain value, but mostly the flowers at the ends of the plants are where the greatest concentrations of those particular beneficial molecules and chemicals are. are. And uh, so nowadays, the culture and harvesting and the processing of cannabis is considerably different than it may have been years ago. And it would have been used years ago for many different things. Uh, it could have been used as, as things for pain, for sleep, for, for calming the nerves, for the very things you think of today, but perhaps without the same kind of modern diagnostic terms that we use for it for different diseases. It was part of culture. And in that sense, it was a uh, an important part of most cultures um, and, and exists so still today, but under a very different paradigm since it, it went under prohibition. And, let, and let's talk about that for a minute. What, what drove that? I, I had, you know, in looking at some research, there was some literature that said it was uh, a big newspaper uh, magnet uh, on the West Coast here who was concerned about the hemp taking over his business, so he, he used his influences uh, to uh, ban it. Is that your story, or do you have other stories of why it went into prohibition? It's probably a combination of things. I don't know if I would call them stories, but there are many viewpoints that when you look at retrospectively may have contributed to it being less than popular and under suspicion. And you need to consider the time and the age of it. We had just come out of the First World War. There were elements uh, of, of violent gangs coming up, perhaps from Mexico and, and infiltrating. And back in the culture then, it may have been used in the context of guns and warfare. Hardly the, the peace-loving, uh, happy nature we have of it when you think of things like Woodstock and use in that setting. It's all in context. Uh, we were fairly, in a time then, probably relatively ethnocentric as far as a country with a world war starting and going on in the early 1930s and the Great Depression also wanting to keep the jobs from, from immigrant communities perhaps coming with their cannabis from the South or maybe even uh, opium from, from the Orient and coming in through the West Coast of the country. It was a different day and age. And... Uh, what you're bringing up, though, about the pharmaceutical industry uh, may also have some overlap to why, in a cumulative way, it may have uh, finished. And it wasn't only William Randolph Hearst, is who you're talking about with your West Coast newspaper magnet. Ooh. But I, I also, wasn't going to mention that. Uh, but also, uh, even bare aspirin 
they're a company originally out of Germany, uh, had a patent that expired around 1930. So now you had uh, a drug that was available, also used for pain, that might be having a, an interest from a pharmaceutical company. And, well, we have that. Why do we need this cannabis plant around to treat pain if we've got aspirin now? And especially since it had come off of this patent. So those are combinations of things, uh, social, um, competitive for different things that the plant brings as far as hemp, competitive from pharmacological history. I think it was a confluence that took it out of the formulary. And, and that happened in 1937. And uh, even the education of it, because of being prohibited, absolutely prohibited, meant that the original information published by the United States Pharmacopeia in 1942, which was the last publication of that, the failure even to share the information with, with doctors was criticized heavily by the American Medical Association at that time. So this is fully two, two and a half generations ago. And so physicians nowadays have to deal with the fact that we've had that, just that, two and a half generations of physicians trained under prohibition, which technically means that it's a, uh, a substance that has no known medical use and a high potential for abuse. And it seems that we're learning otherwise more recently. And that's, that's the whole process right now that we're working on uh, within government and the people, because as all, all drugs are given a schedule, and Schedule 1 drugs, things like uh, LSD and marijuana or cannabis, were rated that way. So that's part of the reason we couldn't do any really good research and the scientists and the people that knew and the physicians that felt that there might be some benefit were not able to do anything. In fact, again, in my research, it showed that anybody that was going to do research that was sponsored by the government was really looking for negative effects of cannabis to prove that it should still remain as a Schedule One, right? Well, it's not necessarily everybody. There's some actual fine research that can still go on, but you're probably referring to the National Institute of Drug on Drug Abuse, NIDA, and their mandate understandably is on drug abuse. So mm -hmm. while it doesn't mean that there's no beneficial um, studies that could go on, the preponderance of data over the last many years has been focused on looking for those negatives to enforce why it is in Schedule 1 to begin with. And so that does slant the data a bit and uh, makes it so it's challenging at best, also because it's not able to be grown in any other than one federally controlled location. And access to that for research becomes prohibitive in of itself. It's an arduous process, involves many different agencies in addition to NIDA, and, and it makes it very challenging to do meaningful research under prohibition. Jeff, we did a show a few weeks ago, episode, I believe it was 120, uh, on compassion and dignity, dignity of dying people and trying to pass a bill. There's a bill going in California now, SB 120. Eight, I believe it is, for, to allow people to uh, take medications if they're diagnosed with a terminal illness and in pain and they can end their life. This is going around the country. But the thing that seems to be driving it is the people and the compassion and the compassionate caring of people for other people. 
it seems that this is the same thing that's happening right now within the process. Well, the words compassionate care just are what they are. Um, and, and physicians are expected to provide compassionate care. Uh, it's a very interesting word, compassion, because it's been used very effectively by advocates and the lobby who would like to see cannabis reclassified. And uh, in that sense, uh, the mantra, if you will, of compassion has been very effective as, as of late. Uh, it's absolutely something that has been picked up by some of the major networks, CNN in particular. And so when the issues of, of what qualifies as compassionate care comes for cannabis, it's not simply you know end-of-life issues. It's those in the beginning of life, some children who are unfortunate to have forms of epilepsy, which are absolutely debilitating, uh, have been found more recently to have some significant benefits from certain combinations of, of cannabis, in particular CBD, cannabidiol, and some THC to work when seemingly no other things seem to provide relief. And that's been picked up in a compassionate care mantra by CNN in an episode they published last year. And then on those same themes this year, just a few weeks ago, CNN continued on with the uh, mantra of compassionate care as it relates to not kids anymore and not end-of-life issues, but very much issues concerning themselves with our veterans. The PTSD diagnosis, from which it carries apparently an incredibly high suicide rate that's been quoted of 22 veterans per day, stress-related disorders committing suicide, absolutely has opened up a different mantra extending children with epilepsy now to, in this case, persons afflicted with post-traumatic stress disorders. So compassion is a fascinating word because at the same time of considering what the meaning of compassion is, under prohibition, you have very well-meaning and well-intentioned researchers and physicians who have not seen the research to support the use of cannabis wanting to see just that bona fide, double-blind, objective research. And the fact is that that research, being that way and conducted properly, is done without passion. So it's actually considered dispassionate research, which makes sense from a researcher's point of view, not to slant the data. And somehow that's been misconstrued as being uncompassionate. The doctors involved have plenty of compassion, even those that may not be ready for, for authorizing a patient end of life or otherwise with cannabis. But sometimes they're being pigeonholed and, and pushed into a corner, which to me seems that asking for dispassionate research is a very different use of the word than being uncompassionate, and, and yet it's divisive to the whole subject's dialogue. Back in the 60s, we heard about Delta-9 THC, tetrahydrocannabinol, <clears throat> but more recently, we've heard about other chemistry within the uh, cannabis plant. Let's talk about the chemistry for a little while. Tell us about what chemicals are in the plant and which ones work with what and what we're looking for in terms of treatments? Well, there are many, many chemicals, more being described every week, Len. And the chemical that you're talking about, actually, it's 50 years ago this year that THC, Delta 9 that you're talking about, THC, was first synthesized. And uh, that's sort of a 
holiday in of itself, if you think about it as far as half a century of knowledge of what it really exists as as a chemical. But about 25 years ago, the study and the research went further with perhaps something that was even more remarkable. Uh, We found out where that particular chemical works within us. And that system, it's called a receptor, is a very complicated system of what are called endocannabinoid uh, receptors. And they exist in the brain and the body. They interact with the chemicals in different ways, but we have that system in us for a reason we can get to in a little bit. The following chemicals, though, are principally the two that are most used and most talked about in combination. One is, as you mentioned, delta-9-THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. The other is CBD, cannabidiol. And combinations and balances between those two chemicals that are both plant-derived are what offers seemingly the greatest therapeutic um, merits, but we don't even really know for how many diseases yet. Right now, we've just talked about two just now, children with neurological movement disorders, uh, adults maybe having stress disorders. But to date, the only chemical that right now is in the FDA's pipelines looking at how it does work with enough research, not done here in the U.S., but abroad, is is a drug by GW Pharmaceuticals called Sativex, and Sativex is just that. It's a a derived balance of chemicals between those two agents, THC and CBD, approximately in equal amounts, and its indication are for adults who have multiple sclerosis usually, and in about 90% of patients who have that have intractable, horrible muscle spasms, and this seems to provide them with, with significant relief. The trick is in the dosing. So as people start to take these new medicines and get used to using these cannabinoids, would be the word, uh, the dosing is critical because this is the type of a thing where if you get taking little doses, increased, increase a little more, a little more, to the point to where you have a therapeutic effect and treatment to where the symptoms are abated, that should be the stopping point because you're actually adjusting and regulating, again, your body's own endocannabinoid system. And uh, we don't really know what happens to people for, you know, years and years of use. And and there's some research coming out that shows that that particular receptor system within us is highly resilient to having a lot of receptors filled, stop, abstain for a month, and resets. Um, There's early research to show that it's a very forgiving system But right now, dosing-wise and all of the other potential uh, disease states that may be helped by it are really poorly known. What I will say is that most of the things that cannabis seems to be addressing right now are not necessarily curative. They're therapeutic. They treat different things. And as the science evolves, maybe we'll find out other things. But to date, It's therapeutic for several things and showing great promise, not only for the two items we just talked about, but perhaps for the immune system, you know, where the immune system is modulated, perhaps for what's called cell-to-cell recognition, which is one of the problems that happens that derives certain cancers, and certainly other types of, of illnesses. We all know what happens when you hear of people with the munchies. It can be a great appetite. Uh, help for people who have uh, eating, not just disorders, but what about people with wasting syndromes? Your state, 
20, 25 years ago, dispensaries there were community health centers where patients with HIV found that this actually could help them, their well-being, their general health, improve their out, uh, their appetite, the outcome. And in fact, uh, that that's one of the major first disease states that it seems to have been absolutely helpful for. So it, it's an evolving science right now that shows that, in fact, these chemicals have a myriad of, of potential benefits. And I've heard plenty of people say that if cannabis were discovered not on the eastern slopes of the Himalayas, but somewhere in the jungles of the Amazon in South America today, it would be heralded as the wonder drug of the millennium. <laughs> um, and who knows what the future is. We may talk about that a little bit. You know, when I do my research on vitamins and supplements and things like that, we know that, for example, in an orange, there's vitamin C. So all of the companies have tried to extract and synthesize vitamin C, and, and now it's fortified in many of the things that we have. But in my mind, and the way it appears in a lot of the literature, the vitamin C that we're getting in a pill is, is different and less effective than the vitamin C that we would get if we were eating a whole orange because of the complexity of what else is in the orange. Are we going to find that in marijuana also? So we have the plant here in the flowering part, but then we're going to have the pharmaceutical companies trying to extract the CBDs and the THCs and figure out something with that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you're bringing up a very interesting concept about what does a plant offer in its original packaged form that perhaps extraction of the individual chemicals deprives uh, us of and when it's put together that way. To begin with, um, as anybody knows who has uh, smelled one type of cannabis versus another, they're distinctively different. And yet their chemical analysis may be similar, but some of those smells and subtle effects, in fact, don't happen necessarily from the THC or the CBD we talked about, those principal chemicals, but from other types of chemicals that are within the whole plant biologically, known as flavonoids and terpenes. These are things that in combination with that and the principal drugs are known to have almost like a synergistic effect that that's sometimes been called an entourage effect. Um, and they really give what most people who have used them differentially regard as the character or subtle differences from one cannabis strain to the next. So extraction of those individual chemicals is, is a slippery slope when put back together. And uh, I think I shared with you a slide of someone who said it far better than I could, Deepak Chopra from the Ayurveda sort of orientation of Eastern medicine, not Western medicine, where extraction of those chemicals becomes the system of how we tend to like to label one drug, one disease, you know, one cure sort of uh, mentality. In fact, if you were to try to go to a doctor practicing Eastern medicine or giving you herbs that way, they seldom, if ever, would give you one drug or two. It's always a cocktail, three, four, five, half a dozen different things that in balance give you the health benefits or what are being looked for. So I can't quote it exactly because I don't even see the slide in front of me, but Deepak Chopra said something to the extent that isolating an individual constituent from a plant is an affront to nature. <laughs> it's like, it's like, 
removing the intelligence and leaving the wisdom behind. Uh, very nice. <laughs> yes. When when we talk about this right now, let's get into actual reality here for just a moment. There's somebody that's about to uh, go through chemotherapy or having chemotherapy, having severe nausea and loss of appetite. There's a, a, a post-war veteran who's having PTSD. There's a person with epilepsy, a child with a, an epilepsy that has gone through all of the Western medical treatments and is still not working. So they have uh, choices right now, I guess. And the first choice, when we look at medicine, if somebody has a sore throat or a bacterial infection, they go to their doctor, they write a prescription, and then they go to the pharmacy and pick up penicillin VK 500 milligrams and take it in a prescribed dose. Right now, it seems that people are, when they want medical marijuana or medical cannabis, they're going to a dispensary that is not really run by a pharmacist. It's run by, well, you tell us who it's run by. The states vary from A to Z, Glenn. And, and as you know, only a, barely a parity of states, not even quite that, have some laws which, which allow the state to function on behalf of its citizenry and, and do something other than what the federal stance would allow because of being prohibited. So it, it depends on which state you're speaking of. But for, for the most part, I think what you're alluding to are the dispensaries that may have a variety of different cannabis. Mostly the biggest criticism is that not all of those strains that you may see out there really come with the full disclaimer and disclosure of what's in it. Uh, the cultivation techniques may not be done in all places to a pharmaceutical grade. And, and the reason that these are important is it's real important to remember that we need to establish the data that says if somebody is ill with a particular diagnosis, what truly might be best for them, rather than making it an experimental thing where not a doctor's authorizing, but someone who may have had a little experience and they're in a dispensary and, uh, you know, they, they may say, oh, well, you know what? I had a friend who told me his father-in-law had that and he took this and it helped him. Right. Um, it, that's a little loose for being an acceptable high medical standard in today's uh, expectations of botanical medicines or any medicines. So uh, trying to have quality assurance is one thing for what's in the plant. But the quality improvement that is really the tenets of good medical practice is something that's yet to arrive and, and get to this industry. It will evolve. It requires absolutely looking at when something does not work as favorably as expected. How do you use that information proactively and share it that, hey, in that particular patient, this particular product was in fact dangerous. That's when you breach that saying of do no harm in, in medicine. And cannabis is a medicine, drug, natural, natural food supplement. You can call it lots of different things, but it absolutely has known side effects. And if those side effects are not tolerated well once with, by someone, that's very important knowledge as well as the important knowledge of when something works to someone's benefit. So accumulating the data is key and avoiding uh, dispensing certain medicines which may have social consequences uh, is all part of the practice, not simply of safe medicine, 
but social responsibility. Hmm. Christina, any thoughts? Oh my goodness, I, I'm I'm so busy trying to keep up here. <laughs> Is these chemicals? It's it's uh, very interesting, um, Jeff. What you say about the in Eastern medicine with uh, I know the Chinese doctors when you walk in and they diagnose you, there isn't just one product that they give you. They have every concoction that you can think of that is placed on that scale from, from beetles to funguses to all these different dried plants and insects. Scorpion that conco- blood. Yes, that they concoct mm-hmm. and, and they wrap it up and they say, drink this tea like three days in a row. And it, it's so interesting to hear that... that what we're doing is we are extracting these chemicals from that plant or that component. True. And, and once you can get past the yuck factor from what they might derive from, <laughs> it really is a combination of those particular molecules. That's where the medicines come from. And even the way we treat certain diseases today that we know are tied to our immune system health. You know, it's one thing to have an antibiotic against a bacteria, but so many illnesses are from viruses and most importantly, immune system problems that many often the balances of those combinations of chemicals are what keep the immune system in also its own natural native balance. And mm-hmm. that's the secret of most nature. Nature seeks a balance in almost all situations. So even today, when people think of how is HIV treated, it's not with one medicine. It's still, we use the term cocktail for that disease state as well. Uh, and, and so harnessing the immune system's ability to keep our own selves healthy is essential to the way the plants are used in combinations for that purpose. Uh, to a certain extent, unfortunately, that lesson never made it from east to west as thoroughly as it still exists there. Uh, because we're sort of stuck in our own paradigm. <laughs> we're changing that. We're trying to change that on Magical Medical Tour. One step at a time. <laughs> one, step at a, one plant at a time. How's that? That's right. So I want to I stay on this topic for a few minutes here of somebody, there's one of two options that happens. Somebody feels that within their disease state, the PTSD or the neurological disorder, they go to their doctor. And the doctor is going to be in one of two camps, potentially. One, I want to help you and give you medical cannabis. Or two, that's not my world. I don't believe in that. So I want to talk a little bit about what what the doctors need to know. But I also want to know, for the doctor that actually believes in it, uh, when they write a prescription, say, yes, medical marijuana, if, if someone has PTSD and we know that the THC component should be the higher rather than the CBD or vice versa, if they had a neuromotor disorder where the CBD portion of the molecule was more important than, that, than the psychotropic or THC, does the doctor write that in the prescription or is this the person, they just go to the dispensary and they have the discussion with the person who's behind the counter saying, oh, you'll like this more. Well, to start with, it depends on the knowledge base of that physician. And it's not necessarily an MD physician of allopathic medicine, which is my background, but you have doctors of osteopathy. And in particular, naturopathic uh, physicians authorize a lot of patients to get it. And I used a very deliberate word just now, Glenn, authorize. Because the way you were just describing physicians, 
physicians cannot prescribe cannabis because it de facto is a Schedule One drug, cannot be prescribed anywhere, even in the states that it's legal. Now, exactly. there are other words. You can authorize it. You can you know, arrange for a patient to get it, give them a, a waiver of something else. Th- those are largely semantics, but because of the designation and the true word legally of prescription, physicians nowhere can prescribe a Schedule One medicine, drug, substance uh, in, in our country. So getting around the semantics for a moment then, the physicians who are knowledgeable with it, and they're few and far between, uh, may be knowledgeable enough to know for a given disease state what's the more appropriate balance of chemicals. This is new science. Endocannabinoid system developed or just discovered for the first time barely 25 years ago uh, is in its infancy. So there are really big challenges to accumulating enough data points, they would be called, of evidence that this combination works for that disease therapeutically that makes it a challenge even for those doctors that are dedicating their practices exclusively to the endocannabinoid system and cannabis as a medicine. So it's not quite there yet. In terms of the diagnosis you just brought up, though, in comparison to the children who need the high CBD for seizures, muscle spasms, it seems that patients with PTSD stress disorders need relatively higher doses of the THC side and not no CBD, but perhaps less CBD as compared to the balance flip for those other neuromovement disorders afflicting patients with multiple sclerosis or epilepsy. Um, the other cannabinoids that are out there are yet to be fully known in terms of who they would work best for or at what doses. But these are things now where because physicians have really not been adequately trained and educated, that truly is what's needed more than anything else. Otherwise, the the evidence shared from well-meaning people in dispensaries who are trying in their best way to help are largely anecdotal experiences and not really passing the scrutiny of the research we'd expect from most traditional medicines. If there's somebody out there a family that has a child with an epileptic disorder uh, that they've gone to their doctors and they've gone through all the treatments and it's not successful and they just don't know what to do. Is there a place they can go, a website, a link, uh, somewhere that they can find more information and, and get this information and help their child? Well, it's a hot topic. And if you followed again, uh, the, the, programs that have been produced by none other than CNN's own Sanjay Gupta, he actually had a a rather catharsis in terms of not really believing about what could happen for the children who were nothing else would happen, and then finding that uh, he found that kids who had seizures, nothing else worked when they could access certain uh, cannabis strains with high CBD, there seemed to be potentially great promise. And the, the emphasis of that program, I believe, was the program Weeds 2. There's currently Weeds 3 that came out about a month ago. The focus was the fact that the only place that many of these families could access that was in Colorado, 
where some of this research has perhaps had its longest track record and some growers are exclusively working to try to provide that for that particular illness. But that's only one illness of many, many more that are likely to surface in the not-too-distant future. And as states get to uh, devise not simply their own laws for where it'll be more accessible to their citizenry, but perhaps in the not-too-distant future, a change of scheduling or something to permit greater research, but through a federal level access, that's where a lot of the answers to even the question you gave just now will derive from. There really is a a very loose uh, understanding of a national database because the federal government really doesn't have this right now in in their wheelhouse uh, in a true research way to to improve the industry and, and the accessibility to patients across the country. And of course, like every other medication that we've ever dealt with, there's the positive effects and potential side effects, and this is going to be part of the future research. To, I mean, we know certain things maybe, but over over a long period of time, there's going to be maybe other side effects based on the, the re- ratios of the THC and the CBD. I want to know, uh, clearly, whenever something like this comes into an issue in medicine, there's ethics involved in this, ethics on the part of the community, ethics on the part of uh, the legislature, and really specifically, ethics on the part of the physicians who are looking at this. And then there's even bioethics. So what do, from your point of view, uh, physicians and the community need to understand and know as we go forward with the bioethical component of uh, medical cannabis? Well, traditionally, we've looked at issues in terms of medicine and the law from what we consider medical legal ethical viewpoints or perspectives. And in that sense, uh, even the AMA is rather, uh, rather involved to say that if a physician has a patient and it's known that a treatment would be well good for their patient and yet the law doesn't allow it, that that physician should, in fact, consider an advocacy position to change that law. But bioethics is a little different. It's a different paradigm entirely because it basically takes note that in the last 50 years or so, with all the discoveries of modern medicine, chemistry, molecules, evolution, that there are some issues that are not really as cleanly defined simply in terms of a medical ethics viewpoint but that appreciate who we are as animals with genetic evidence that says maybe there are instinctual reasons for why we do things and that at the same time, as those new discoveries come to light, they need to be looked at through a different prism. And um, we can get into that. I, I did include a slide there for you as well with what's considered to be a bioethical position statement, which I believe heretofore has really never been offered in the discussion. And it doesn't have to be specific to cannabis. As a matter of fact, probably it shouldn't. It's more reflective over all the scientific discoveries that we're just getting to the tips of icebergs. And we really don't know what lies underneath, but they're tantalizingly uh, there at our fingertips to expand the way in which we look at ourselves as biological creatures. And um, some of this gets rather... Um, esoteric in discussions because this is not a medical system that works the way we would think it would in, in other situations. This is a system whereby 
You can take the fact, for instance, that THC has effects on memory. That's one of the reasons we don't want it near forming minds of of children, even young teenagers, because you can absolutely determine that when young people have it, before the mind and brain is finished growing, you give it to kids who are in their teens, and there can be a discernible difference in IQ. And, And I don't know about you, but I want all the IQ points I can get. As an adult, informed decisions, that's a very different uh, consideration, especially treating different diseases where there's a risk and a benefit. But I'm really referring to a few things that the federal government has said. Don't get it near kids. Avoid uh, drugged driving. Uh, those, Those are two things that still a responsible citizenry would do. So what happens then, Glenn? Let's expand the conversation a little bit and talk about what I think many people have experienced if they've had cannabis before. Um, they forget where they leave their keys. How many times does that happen? Even without having cannabis, it's just one of the things we do. We forget what we do sometimes. And the fact is, forgetting actually can be very healthy. And, and that's a way that we tend to know that we can recover from traumatic events. So I'd like to sort of take you on a moment of a walk. Let's say that instead of being in 2015, we're all going through a walk, and it's 5,000 years ago. And we're all going on our merry way, trying to survive the rigors of the stresses of, of our existence to kill a squirrel for eating or find a fish. And as we're walking around, there's a big beast that starts to track us and follow us, and it's a pig. It's not a pig. It's a wild boar. And let's say that wild boar is something out of a, a prehistoric sci-fi movie the size of a Buick. What are we going to do? We're going to run, and let's say we can find a place to escape, and we run up a tree. Our hearts are pounding. Uh, we're breathing fast. Maybe we're bloodied from climbing up the tree, and our muscles are aching. Nightfall comes. And that wild pig better leave because something is going to come along at night that eats it. So we're left up in that tree to recover. And while we're recovering, how do we actually heal by going to sleep and getting ready for the next day? That's where our own endocannabinoid system allows us in the sheer terror of that moment in a while to recover so we can close our eyes, actually go to sleep, let our mind and our body heal, Because if we don't do that and get out of that tree at sunrise that next day, that pig's going to be back looking for us. So we better be on our way, healthy, recovered, and ready for the next day's challenges. And that ability to recover, forget for the moment, is essential for our well-being and probably a major reason why the endocannabinoid system exists within us, with Mm. our own body's chemicals that interact with those receptors to allow us to do that. And then you have the situations where some people have a problem in how they deal with those kind of stresses in a therapeutic way, then presenting perhaps as insomnia. Many people use cannabis before bed to help to go to sleep a little bit as a way to recover that way. So what I'm trying to point out is before we went and knew all of these benefits, there has to be a reason why we'd be wired in a way that helps us to forget in a healthy way. And it has nothing to do with forgetting where your keys are left. Hmm. It would be great if you were able to climb up a large uh, marijuana plant 
when you were running away from the pig. You know what? (laughs) Let's just bridge off on that for a second. Marijuana plants are traditionally large plants. They're so large that they used to be used, as I said, to make rope and fiber. And in fact, many marijuana plants are 20, 25-foot big plants. Well, when prohibition came, how do you hide a 25-foot plant? (laughs) So the strains that are generally used today and those that are grown in basements around the country, but particularly in your state and hybridized over the last 20 to 25 years, are small, more frequently flowering, and have been hybridized to be incredibly potent compared to the way they existed several decades ago. And and the difference of those plants and the chemical balance of what nature had had served up for those 10,000 years before are very different uh, quality and characterized plants. Um, When I was a kid, and there were things that carried the names like Maui Waui or or, uh, Acapulco Gold, look at what those plants looked like. They were large. They had probably very different balances of chemicals, and they were obviously hard to hide. But those plants today, for the most part, are really extinct because they were used and hybridized in different ways to make them smaller plants, more potent, and they are sort of dodo birds in that sense and no longer (laughs) exist. Um, It's sort of a fascinating lesson because that's exactly what prohibition does. It takes that which is prohibited and reduces it to the smallest size, compact of maximum strength. Same thing happened with alcohol prohibition. Alcohol prohibition was the death knell for the beer industry. Spirits were all the rage. And not only spirits, but moonshine, really concentrated spirits. That's what rum runners would do. They would put those spirits and distribute them, and then whoever got it would cut it, and then they gave it to somebody else and cut it again. So the strength of whatever is prohibited is concentrated and reduced to its smallest but best transportable size. That's a direct result of prohibition, and cannabis is no no difference. We're speaking with Dr. Jeff Block, uh, horticulturist, master gardener, and, oh yes, anesthesiologist. And it's time for a health tip. Do you have one for us today? (laughs) Well, I'll tell you that the anesthesia and the plants, it took a lot of school, Glenn. And it was stuff that I was schooled by by family for the plants. And then between undergraduate chemistry degree and then medical school and then internship, residency, fellowship before 25 years of schooling and clinical practice, all that took a lot of teachers And so I find that it's actually interesting at this stage of my life to realize that it's actually healthy for me to forget lots of the things I may have learned from those (laughs) teachers. Uh, That ties in very well with the Maui Wowie also, I think. Absolutely. (laughs) You'll be able to forget that. Jeff, is there anything you wanted to mention that we didn't cover today before I talk about your uh, consulting now in the last moment or two before we say goodbye? Well, I I thought we might just touch on a moment, Glenn. We touched about the extremes of stress that's painful in terms of the analogy I I gave you a moment ago with prehistoric people, and I liken that to the stresses that may exist in post-traumatic stress disorder. But there's a different 
reason for thinking about forgetting is also being healthy. And, and that really deals with what was my minor while I was a chemistry major back in college. And it has to deal with the basic Freudian type of concept where not only pain, but pleasure can be considered as part of a continuum. And so if you think about this a moment, if we had no way to forget extremes of pain as, a, as, a, as human beings, we might not have the need in our language for the word brother or sister, because we'd all be only children. Our mothers wouldn't want to have a second baby, would they? <laughs> and, and, and so, Christina, I don't know if you chime in with that one, but that's what we guys have been told. It certainly looks uncomfortable. <laughs> but that's the pain side of it. So what I'd like to do is, because cannabis has such a balance of effects, let's talk a moment about something that really in recent context, is not brought up quite as much as I seem to remember it from my youthful days, perhaps some with indiscretions. But cannabis, in terms of things that uh, relaxes, stress-free, libido changes, uh, was pretty well known from a word I haven't heard that much lately of aphrodisiac. And let's imagine a minute that we're talking about not extremes of pain, but now extremes of pleasure. We, we've just talked about how it's really unhealthy for us to remember extremes of pain, haven't we? And right. that most people wouldn't remember it because if you were that phobic of pain, you probably would have great trepidation of going out and exploring the wilderness, things like that, and that you would carry that with you as, as an extraordinary burden. But what about extremes of pleasure? Extremes Perfect. of pleasure might seem wonderful while they're there, but what about if you just can't escape taking in the extremes of pleasure at the exclusion of other responsible ways to stay healthy? So let's go back to our caveman analogy again of walking through the wilderness way, way, way long ago. And what happens when you think that caveman og is finding a way to procreate with um, Lady Lady uh, Paleolith. <laughs> and, and there they go, and they're so into what they're doing because they're so wrapped up with the extremes of pleasure that nothing else matters. And they don't observe, because they're so into that all the time, that there's a saber-toothed tiger that's hunting them down. So how long do you think that behavior of extreme pleasure-seeking would stay in the genetic pool? So it's actually, I think, healthy to forget extremes of pleasure, or we might seek it out so frequently as to make it a controlling part of our lives. And that genetically wouldn't be a good, good thing either. So my message here is that there's a balance in life between extremes that finds a happy medium. And in fact, that if we are all the result of our life's experiences, our own nurturing, that brings us to a point of understanding our tolerances, both in how we seek pleasure and avoid pain, that that really becomes the difference between you and myself and Christina or everybody around us. And they mold our personalities to a sense that perhaps the endocannabinoid system then is our personality receptor system. Wow, beautiful. Christina, any thoughts on that? 
I'm all for that balance, Jeff. Thank you so much. Yes. <laughs> too much of a good thing is not good. So, <laughs> or too much of a bad thing, either way. So let's let's be more forgetful these days. That's what he's saying, right? <laughs> Getting is good and healthy. Yes. I'm very grateful to our special guest, Dr. Jeff Block, who has uh, given us his wisdom and expertise, not only in anesthesia in an earlier uh, talk, but in botanical medicine and medical cannabis today. Thank you so much, Jeff. We really appreciate that. I want to thank all of my teachers and healers for keeping me on my journey and thanking Yoga Hub, Christina Segovia, and all involved with all of our viewers and listeners. And until next week, I look forward to getting together with everyone on Magical Medical Tour in search of optimal health. Thank you so much, Dr. Woolman, and thank you so much, Jeff. This is a really wonderful show. It's so informative, and I'm, I'm sure those of us who are listening to it have to listen to it again. <laughs> anytime. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. And of course, we would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you would like to contact Dr. Jeffrey Block, please do so through his site, nurturingnature.com. Nurturingnature.com. And of course, you can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, glennwoolman.com, glennwoolman.com, where you can learn about his metaphor, square breath. We're always grateful for your feedback, your comments, your suggestions. Um, please don't hesitate to type it in uh, on that website or give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK, 818-LET'S-TALK. Thank you for joining us today, and until next time, namaste. Is that if you shift the macronutrient composition of a diet to a ketogenic diet, which is used clinically by Johns Hopkins and Mayo Clinic, originally you know developed these protocols. Uh, shifting the macronutrient composition of the diet can put you into nutritional ketosis. You know, that's that's very different than pathological ketosis. Mm. So nutritional ketosis is when your body is breaking down fats and then you elevate these ketone bodies